Welcome to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people with professional and ancestral ties to the land. We release these interviews every other weekend, and we do want to encourage our listeners out there to subscribe, share, rate our podcast. Rate and review. <laughs> yeah, it helps. It helps let other people know. So more people can find it. Yep. I'm Melissa Kamara. I'm a conservationist and uh, artist here on Hawaii Island. Yeah, and I'm Clay Trownick. I, I work at UH. I'm uh, an extension specialist. I do stuff with fire management and ecosystem um, work, watershed work, and trying to support the folks that do uh, kind of protecting these areas. And um, we have been doing a deep dive into Molokai. It's been really fun. We started with Penny Rollins Martin uh, talking about the ocean. We talked with Brian Naiole last time. And now we are interviewing Ed Misaki, who is the retired program manager, the conservation director of the Nature Conservancy Molokai. And um, I also overlapped with Eddie in the early 2000s, and uh, we learned a lot about how, yeah. what he's done and what he's um, uh, been through, frankly, on Molokai. Yeah, foundations and running into community pushback on this kind of work. I mean, you know, this is uh, something we've explored in the past is like, where does kind of conservation fall in to like community work and this kind of stuff? And, you know, you kind of see it's, it's probably came along a little bit later than community activism in other regards, as far as like uh, Hawaiian sovereignty. So you have Eddie kind of doing this work and it's kind of new for people. And then they were figuring out not just like what to do on the mountain to um, make things work, right? Conservation wise, but also like, how do you engage with the public? Um, some of whom are very much against this because you end up, you know, they see it as restricting access, excluding ungulates from places. Ed really talks about, you know, the real hardships in, in, in facing some personal challenges with his neighbors and people he's like running into, which, yeah. you know, we heard at the grocery store, at the grocery like, store oh, you wherever. Gotta, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hardcore. And I think it's a perspective that maybe some of us, I, I speaking for myself, you know, doing community engagement in my previous capacities is nothing like what I, like what he's been through. And I just want right. to say like community engagement, we, we talk about that, but, but Ed is the living embodiment of what community engagement is and what it means to really have hard conversations with people and remain friends with people that, that you are your neighbors and your friends and sometimes your family. And um, I just want to give props to him for that really hard work that is yeah. really and truly about being with other people in the hardest situations. You've seen people walk out of conversations like that and the public discussions. And, you know, he, he he's when you're part of that place, um, it's not so easy. So well, you don't I walk think, away, I think. Well, it also <laughs> and I think a lot of people take for granted just how hard like it's still controversial, yeah. um, but it was even harder then, right? And so this is like real proper path paving, that, yeah. the, you know, that Ed's doing. This yeah. is like the hardest thing you can imagine, right? Like effectively potentially alienating yourself from your neighbors, right? Yeah. Just because you you are committed to um, what you know is the best thing for for the place that you love. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe those... Maybe some folks will listen to that and, and 
Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We talked to these folks and realized that many of the lessons that Molokai has to teach us can inform how we approach other problems. Yeah. And how you frame mm-hmm. the problem, right? Like, what are your objectives here? And, you know, so one of the examples I think that just really like rang clear was this where it starts like, well, we're protecting these forested areas from non-native pigs and goats, but then really what crystallized for people is like, well, actually this whole thing is connected. If we protect the land up there, it reduces sediment and runoff for the reefs down below, which is really more maybe these direct uh, benefits that that some of the communities were interested in that he, he's been working with, right? So it, it is like getting folks on board, um, and and really seeing how the interest and the support for this kind of work has increased over time. So it really was a great opportunity to yes, chat with Ed. Definitely. And uh, as always, I think Clay, you ha- you have some thoughts about the University of Hawaii. <laughs> oh yeah, we just you know you know this is sponsored by the University of Hawaii, so we just need to say that you know the views uh, and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of the university or our um, you know our employers. Uh, and nor that of the folks that we interview. So, you know, right, we try to keep this like a nice open platform for folks to share their stories, share what they've learned. We often don't hear from from folks from Molokai. So this has been really fun for me to, to dive deep. And with that, we'll introduce our next guest here, Ed Edwin Misaki, retired director for the Nature Conservancy Molokai. Yeah, welcome, Eddie. Uh, we're so excited to talk to you. Let's do it. You want to just start just telling us like kind of where you're from and grew up and sort of those experiences that might have led you into doing the work that you you do. Sure. So, um, of course, my name is Edwin Misaki, or people call me Ed, born and raised on Molokai, fourth generation. On my dad's side, his parents started what everybody on Molokai knows is the Misaki store. And then on my mom's side, she grew up on the plantation where I live now, which is mm. Kuala Pool. It used to mm. be called CPC. And so I, I grew up here all my life. My dad was a pole fisherman. So I used to always, from, from when I was okay. three, I can remember back three, four years old, he used to take me and he used to like to go nighttime and dunk. And then he used to like to go walk on the reef and whip for papil. Okay. And so I was, I grew up with that. And then my best friend in high school, his dad was half Hawaiian, half Japanese. And mm. he, he would always take us hunting. And that, that's mm-hmm. my, I call him my hunting kumu. And <laughs> so that's where I learned to hunting. And he also took me diving for taco and fish. And so that's where I learned to dive. The third person that, that, that influenced me a lot. When I was in the sixth and seventh grade, we had this teacher and he was a guy from New York and he had moved and he just happened to live in the teacher's cottage, which was right across the street from where I lived in the old Mango Lane in town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His name was Mr. Ron Kula and he was the science teacher at Kanakakai School. And Man, he just made the biggest impact for me. You know, you've heard the term before. He made science fun and exciting yeah. and interesting, yeah. you know? So lucky, yeah, to have someone like that. And I just took to it. I just took to science. I graduated from the 
high school here, Molokai High School in 1974. Oh, it seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> and, and I've always been very a very active person as far as, you know, when I was growing up, hunting, fishing, surfing. Mm-hmm. Of course, in high school and college, I worked eight summer in the pineapple fields, which when I was in high school, the pineapple field really gave me a perspective on life. And I it was the greatest incentive. You know, my parents, um, their goal in life was to see all their kids go to college and get a degree. Mm. They didn't have to push me hard because I did not want to work in the pineapple fields. And that was my greatest incentive to go to school. So wow. I did. Right. And I graduated from after high school. I went to Colorado State University and I graduated with a BS in biological sciences. So, yeah. Oh, and, uh, I actually I first majored in uh, wildlife biology, biology because I was always very, very, uh, you know, hunting was was a big part of my life. It still is, and mm-hmm. uh, so I thought you know that'd be the dream job, uh, right? And then uh, found out later, you know, while I was going to college, whenever there was job postings, you go look at it and then you hear the whispers about, oh, there's a thousand people applying for that job. So I said, wow, oh, man, Hawaii is even harder to get a wildlife site. That's why I went general bi- biological sciences. In 1982, my brother sends me this little article in the Star Advertiser. It was in the job section and it says, uh, manage the Kamoko Preserve on Molokai, da, 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 da. And so I sent in a resume. And this is an all-time classic story. Alan Holt calls me up. Alan Holt at the time was the head of the the terrestrial or conservation program yeah. of the new TNC program in Honolulu that had just started a couple years ago. And they, the Kamoko Preserve on Molokai was the first attempt to manage lands in Hawaii with the Nature Conservancy. Mm. And um, he calls me up and he goes, you're from Molokai? I goes, yes, born and raised, born and raised. And you have a biology degree? I goes, yes. <laughs> wow, we're interested in you. We want to interview you. <laughs> Yeah. There you go. I guess they had like 60 applicants and I was one of the few on, I was one of, I think the only one on Molokai that actually had a biology degree. And so that lesson for me, I I tell young people, a college degree will not guarantee you anything. What it will guarantee you is that it will open doors. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. the door opened to me. I went to the interview and couple years later, I learned that I was number four on the list. So I was the dark horse. Alan Holt and Calvin Takeda later shared with me when they when the interview committee was meeting, this one guy stood up for me and said, you know, this guy is from Molokai. He has a science degree and he seems yeah. like he's somebody that you, that's very teachable. And so it changed the whole scope and they decided to take a chance on me. That's amazing. 37 years later, when I retired in 2021, I, I mean, oh. you know, I guess I guess I proved that guy right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. You were the dark horse. I mean, that's amazing. You went straight from college into managing the No, I didn't the go straight from college. I, I was working a couple years. When, oh, okay. Okay. 
In fact, I was working for the pineapple field. They hired me and in a pretty good position. And I was there for a couple of years. And then my son was one, one day, uh, one week old, my, my second child. And they called me into the office and that that was my last day of work because the plantation was shutting down and came home. I told my, my wife at the time, we looked at each other, we cried what we're going to do. And we survived that. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So my first job at the Nature Conservancy was to establish Kamako Preserve. Can you describe for our listeners uh, what Kamako, where Kamako is and, you know, what is there and your experience of the place? Okay. So Kamako Preserve is in the, the eastern mountain range of Molokai. Yeah, that's the bigger mountain range. Yeah. it's it's not, It doesn't include Kamako Peak, but it's on the flanks of the Kamako Mountain. And uh, everybody knows the area because there's the famous lookout, the state Waikolo lookout. Mm-hmm. We all know this place growing up. After the state campground, it's really beautiful native forest. And it's well known because of Perkins, the birder. He, mm-hmm. he did a lot of birding in that area. There, Molokai was full of birds at one time, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And wet forest too, yeah? Yeah, Eddie? I mean, It goes from mesic forest to wet forest. And, and then, and then, of course, the very top is what I call the the jungle gym forest. I like that. The cloud forest <laughs> at the very rim of the you know, divide of the island. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I started out. Uh, Alan Holt came over. You know, he, he had worked on Molokai a lot as a uh, establishing the bird transects that Mike Scott established way back then. Boy, I was like a sponge. I I, I couldn't believe it. All these things. That was never taught to us in school. Mm. And I felt cheated, you know, it's like. Yeah. Uh, interesting. All these things that are so unique to Hawaii. I mean, just when I learned that over 95% of the native forest species are found nowhere else in the world. That's when I learned about that word endemic. Yeah. And I was just blown away. Yeah. So, and then the book. That really helped me gain perspective was the one uh, by Sharon Colquist, yeah, mm-hmm. Hawaii and Natural History. That that was like my Bible in the beginning. It it taught me so much because it wasn't a scientific journal. It was a a book written for the layperson, although it was contained a lot of scientific facts, and so that was amazing, yeah. You know, in the beginning, because TNC is a nonprofit and we never had any government funding, it was all fundraise. And mm. so for the first few years, we were actually teeter-tottering on uh, the national office going forward mm-hmm. with us or not. And again, this is an epic story. So this guy, Walt Mataya, he's the head of the conservation program in the Nature Conservancy, the, the terrestrial part. He comes over to, to look to look us over and we're coming down the mountain and we had spent a whole day up there and it was kind of late and we're coming down and we're looking at the south shore of Molokai. The sun's about to set and Alan goes, Hey, let's stop here and let's watch the sun and watch the green flash. And so we see the green flash. It was a clear day. It see the clear, the, the green flash. And all of a sudden this wear breaches, right? You know, in the same Ooh. picture, and, and what Maya told us that sealed the deal for you guys. <laughs> the epic. Yeah. One one moment. One moment. Were you trying to draw on like lessons or experiences from other other efforts at the time? Like, where I mean, where you felt like you were kind of just trying to figure it out on your own? Like- no, no, no. We weren't. Um, 
And the reason why the Kamako Preserve became a nature con- conservancy preserve is Molokai Ranch land. We They gave us a perpetual conservation easement uh, to manage it as a native forest. And it was uh, Molo- it was Molokai Ranch's main watershed. Mm. And uh, Sam Cook and and Phil Spalding were on the Calvin recruited them. Calvin Takeda recruited them to be the on the board of the Nature Conservancy. They're the, they're the charter board members. There are two very powerful men in Honolulu, especially Sam Cook, and they're the ones that said, "Hey, let's do this preserve." So it, it's oh. it's they get the credit for, in my mind, to uh, that made it happen. It was the first managed piece of land for the Nature Conservancy in Hawaii. Yeah. And how many acres for our listeners? Just under uh, 3,000 acres. 3,000 acres. Okay. And of music to cloud forest, right? Yes. Very good music forest. It's mm-hmm. oh, it's really nice. Of course, the, the wet forest is very beautiful too. Some of the best yeah. forest systems in the state, actually. Yeah. And then, of course, the famous Pepeopai Bog. Yeah. And that was one of my first projects first big projects that I took on because the trail to Pepeopai Bog is about three quarters of a mile to the bog and three quarters of a mile after the bog, it goes to the Pelic- what we call the Pelicuno Overlook, looks into the Pelicuno Valley. And so the trail was very beaten, very muddy. And you know, in Hawaii, you don't want to have puddles. That's, that's a sign of a mm-hmm. impacted forest because mosquitoes can lay eggs and mosquitoes are the number one disease carriers and that's why the bird population has yeah. declined in Hawaii. So we were trying to figure out what to do and I came up with this idea, hey, why don't we just, um, because I, I knew redwood could take the wet. So why don't we just put redwood planks down? And so that's what we did. And we and that was the first boardwalk ever constructed in a mountain system in Hawaii. Wow. wow. In 1985, we did the bog. And then in 1987, we did from the parking lot to the bog. And then in 1989, we did from the bog to the Pelican Overlook, a mile and a half total. And that is one of the reasons or one of the main reasons why people started supporting the work because in the beginning, nobody knew what was happening. Yeah. They just didn't know it was even up there. The best way to get people to support it is to get them to love it, to see it, to touch it. Right. That was going to be my next question because like, what was the perception at the time? I mean, it was interesting talking to Brian yesterday because he's talking about snaring, which happened before the fences and then the boardwalk, which happened before the snaring. So, um, you know, what, in, in trying to bring people um, up to speed as to what's actually up there, what was the perception of that place? Like The perception in the beginning was they didn't know who we are or what we're trying to do. And because, because like I say, nobody, 40 years ago, I told, I told our planning group, I said, you know, the only way we're going to get really good support is that we have to go partner with the Department of Education mm-hmm. and have one semester of Hawaii natural history in the schools, yeah. so how all other states do. Yeah. And then yeah. and and I I always thought the seventh grade was a was a good time to do it because mm. before the hormones kick in, you know, kids are <laughs> receptive to new knowledge. And they're at the age where they can comprehend all this stuff. We still don't have it in the schools. It's still not a required subject. And to me, that's a travesty. 
you know? It yeah. is. Because people yeah. just don't know how unique and special our, our native ecosystems are, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you just said it a little while ago, like you felt cheated not knowing that. And I, I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. I felt, after I learned all this, I felt like, wow. And so one of my big push, because people never knew about it, I went on a weekly basis, I think, at least once a week. I went to all the schools. I, I had, mm-hmm. I had uh, we put together this uh, slideshow that, that so people could learn about Hawaii's natural history and how it came about. And, and that really helped. But when people learned that now we wanted to control animals, of course, the hunting community on Molokai is very strong. And they came out against me big time. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, when, when people have lived their lives a certain way, they're not open to new things, right? And Molokai has a, uh, Molokai, I would say, we're, we're kind, and I, I'm part of it, we're kind of uh, territorial, yeah? Yeah. We are a different island and we want to keep it that way, yeah? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. We were the new kids on the block and, you know, they didn't agree with us wanting to get rid of animals. And then it really blew up when we started snaring. Yeah. I, I, I want to describe for our listeners what an actual snare is. Um, you know, uh, just to say that it is this noose that can be set in the, in the forest. It's a steel cable. It's got a one-way slider. So it does, in theory, you know, best case scenario, it does like strangulate the pig and um, kill it. Um, hopefully soon, but not always, we hope. If it's set properly and put on a trail, then it, it can work very effectively. Um, but yeah, that was this the first time that a snares were being set in Hawaii or in the box? No. No, no, no. Snares was being done on the big, I mean, on Maui, you know, Paul Higashino and those guys. Yeah. So of course you described a very gruesome way to you know, control pigs you know, we kind of knew that it would raise a hullabaloo, but we really opened Pandora's box. I mean, we were on the national news, everything. And, yeah. you know, we go to the meeting and people would be just be shouting and threatening me. And, and a lot of the Molokai guys made me feel like I wasn't even part of this island. Some of the transplants made me feel like I wasn't part of this island. But, you know, I grew up here. I'm, I'm just a Molokai boy, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I had to endure this for many years. Of course, I really insulated my staff. So I took all the brunt of everything. And and so then we entered the 2000s and we started getting watershed partnerships. That was something revolutionary. We focused on protecting the watershed, which people could understand and not the native forest because of how unique it was. So people could understand that more. And then we also linked it to the ocean because Molokai has the longest continuous fringing reef in the United States. Right. So we focused on protecting. If you protect the watershed, you also protect the reef. You know, you create less runoff, less erosion, healthier rivers, you know. Were you shifting folks' perspective that were already kind of set against you or was it just more about kind of convincing a bigger slice of the public that that that's that this this work has value? The people who came out against us, you know, I tried to work with them, but then I realized something. You can't change people who don't want to be changed. And so the when the watershed yeah. came out, more people started to understand what we did. So we started getting key supporters that, you know, were community leaders, were Hawaiian leaders, understood what we're doing, and they started supporting us. Right. And the other thing that was a big aha for me is that 
we used to have public meetings and that those never work because you would attract all the people who are against you. Yeah, the most, yeah, the mo- the loudest. And nobody who are for you want to speak up in a situation like that. But when we started right. the Watershed Partnership, we started focusing on Ahupu'aha meetings, people who lived in the area. And the greatest example was Kamalo is a is kind of an old town residential area Molokai. It's not that anymore. It used to have its own harbor, and it's I would say ninety percent Hawaiian community. It's not a homestead, but it's it's a lot of local people. And this one guy, this Hawaiian guy, his name is Kalani. He's passed on now, but he approached me and says, "Hey, we want you to do your watershed project because we like protect our reef." And so he became mm. the champion of Kamalo and we started having these meetings and all these hunters who didn't want what we're doing, they would come after me and say, you cannot do that. Da-da-da. I said, you know what? Go talk to Kalani. And of course, they didn't want to talk to Kalani because that's his <laughs> So that was a big aha for me. And I learned that, wow. Right. You know, talk to the people who live on the coastline below the watershed that we're working on. And so that really elevated our efforts. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we started getting major funding from the state, some some federal, and the, the county started giving us money, which was a great thing because the counties never give money to watershed partnerships. But then they started giving these huge monies and they dedicated every year these huge money just for the Maui Nui Watershed Partnerships, which was a great source of funding. And so we really elevated right. our program. So we went from a 3,000-acre Kamako Preserve to now we're managing today almost 25,000 acres. <laughs> Basically, the whole wow. mountaintop from Kamako all the way to Halava now. So in 1998, the Molokai community decided to go after this economic grant. It was to revitalize small communities. In order to get the grant, we need a partnership. So let's form the East Molokai Watershed Partnership. So we formed it in 1999 with Bishop, with at the time was Bishop Estate, Kamehameha Schools and Kapule Ranch and all these ex- other partners, DOFA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and even the Empowerment Zone Group was a partner. And so that was the first, that's when we formed the partnership. And by 2000, March 2000, we had the fence up. Six-mile fence from basically covered Kamalo Kapule landscape right across the mountain. A lot of people against it, a lot of people for it. And the other big one for me was uh, in 1993, there was this group called Molokai Cares, Conservation and Resource Ensures Survival. They also decided to do an event every year, and it was called... they, they called it the Earth Day event, and they did it in Kanakai School. It was a great event because they invited all the conservation groups on Molokai. We came, did displays. Nobody came. So what I did was um, I moved the Earth Day event to our, our county community center, Mitropoole Center. I did it on a Saturday. We provided entertainment, and we we allowed food boots to come in. The first group that we hired was the most popular group in Hawaii. It was called the Ka'au Crater Boys. And the place was packed. And we did that two years and always the big crowd in the beginning and then they would leave. So the parents would never get to go and see the displays. The kids would all go. 
But now, because it was at night and it was cooler and some of the parents started going in and they started learning. And and so I, I would say, and so we haven't had our Earth Day on Molokai for like three years now because of the pandemic, more like four years. This year, they're going to start it up again. But I would say it's one of the bigger events on Molokai now. And um, we did surveys a couple of times. We attract at least a thousand people at the event. And that's that's one seventh of our population. So that's- We interviewed Pauline Sato. She reckons it's the biggest one in the state. She like- I don't want to brag, but I think it is. <laughs> There's not other like that. Yeah, she says it's her favorite thing to do. Um, you yeah. should see all the- outside agencies that want to come in and share what they do because, you know, and, you know, and it's, it's really, a, it's really, really a great, and we've evolved a little bit from it because we used to bring in outside entertainers. Now we don't, we, we try to use the local entertainers and people still love it. Yeah. Wow. I, I wanted to just backtrack a little bit because, um, talk to us about your hunting, you know, like, um, before for 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 food and then and then how that transitioned into removal you know because it's it's different worlds in a sense you got to have an open mind right and so when i when i learned about our mountains and how it's affecting by basically introduced animals i looked at molokai and i say we only have a small portion of molokai left with all these unique treasures yeah i mean i call them i call the native forests our ancient dinosaurs right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know our living dinosaurs i should say they're they're from ancient time they, they began when the islands emerged from the sea right and uh and then i look at the rest of molokai and there's so much hunting areas i try to tell people we can have both <laughs> you yeah. know we can have both yeah but of course the hunting community in hawaii throughout has always had the the philosophy of it, they're going to take a little, they're going to take it all. Yeah. And that's, it's not true, but it, it's a way to, it's a way to motivate hunters to be against I know, see, yeah. conservation efforts. Right. Just right. like the fishing now, you know, it's a travesty that Hawaii doesn't have fishing license or uh, active management programs in the ocean. And uh, it's because, again, people say they're going to take away our food, even though they're depleting the area and depleting themselves of food. You know, it's it's to me, it's a travesty. Yeah, it's interesting that lack of trust. And then, you know, the and just like, how do you build that? Because I and like I've kind of I've seen it on the other side, too, where if it's like, you know, the, the, the messaging gets a little bit fierce, maybe on the conservation side where you just, you know, eradication, like get rid of them all. Why don't we just do it? And you started looking at the landscape more holistically and you're like well first of all you know getting rid of all of them like do you have you ever usually frankly coming from people that haven't done the work it's not going to happen this is the other thing about being in the position i was i had to have integrity i had to say what was true and factual yeah they, yeah they didn't yeah yeah they could counter my arguments with yeah. fiction and and hearsay and and that was the most frustrating thing you know you go to a public meeting and they say stuff and right right sometimes i wish they can be held to it and go to court or something you know yeah everything and anything to go against us so that was the toughest thing to hold my tongue and just stick to the facts and stick to what i knew was true man take it i can't even imagine being in that yeah <laughs> it was so hard for me i almost quit yeah 
I love my job. I love the mission. I almost quit. What kept you doing it? Yeah. And what, I mean, was it just cause you got to kept going back up there? And I mean, what really kept you going through all that? My love for the island. This is, this is yeah. my home. My, yeah. The love for the resources, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, what, what I, you know, you read about people in bad situations and how they stuck to it. And eventually things turned around. So, that kept me going. And, and like I say, the love for my island. Right. You know, this is my island. I was born and raised there. I know I'll die here. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm just a Molokai boy. Yeah. And it makes it all the much harder because you're like, how come you guys can't see, right? What I'm trying to do here. It's because of, you know, history has shown people going to be closed minded because of their, mm. their values. And so that's, that's the thing that I try to do is I try to, I, I didn't try to reduce the value of hunting because I'm a hunter. I tried to increase the value of the native forest. Right, right, right. Yeah, and right. so, like, it got personal, uh, you know, and I can only imagine, like, Molokai small, you go to the post office or the one store or whatever, and you're like, you know, you've just taken it from the sp- your neighbor uh, at the public meeting be- the night before or whatever. I'm just imagining. <laughs> and that, that goes on and on. And um, did it finally alleviate at some point, you know, like. Let me tell you this story. Our fundraiser in Oahu wanted to make Mo'omomi a flagship preserve. She wanted to really advertise it, make it big. And I told her, no, we can't do that. She goes, why? It's a wonderful place. I know it is. But people are going to be offended on Molokai. And I mm. told her, you know, you can go to a meeting, people yell and shout at you. Then you go shopping and you can forget about that yelling and shouting. I go mm. shopping or I go somewhere and people are there and still looking at me with stink eye or whatever. And I can't get away from it. Yeah. That's the difference between Honolulu right. and Molokai. You cannot get away from it. Right. So, Yeah, there's so, no, uh, no, no, no being anonymous. <laughs> So, so please have some empathy for me. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Right. I mean, right. yeah, huh. I, I wasn't here in Maui or here. I'm not there. I'm on in Hamakua now, but uh, I wasn't there in Maui for, during the demonstrations or, you know, they're holding up the signs and vandalizing the fences. Was that before you had started doing the fencing projects up in Molokai or around the same time? It all evolved together because at the time... When I started, the only mm-hmm. place that you could really learn about the native forest was the two national parks we have, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And so right. the Nature Conservancy really made a difference, expanding management and expanding the knowledge of our native forest. In fact, I don't know if you guys remember this guy, Bob Lee. He was the first manager of the natural area reserves. He just sat in his office and it was basically paper parks because he had no staff. He had no money. And mm, so right. the Nature Conservancy decided to make an effort to at least write management plans for him. That's why Barry Morgan was hired. And then we went to the legislator <laughs> to create the NARS Fund, which really helped the NARS program. And it helped private conservation agencies like TNC to, to receive monies from that NARS fund. It was a great idea. Mm-hmm. What, what basically the NARS fund was, it took a small percentage of all the real estate transaction in Hawaii. So it makes sense. You're developing and you pull some money yeah. out for conservation, right? Yeah. And it provided a lot yeah. of money and it was steady. You know, it was, yeah. it was, the money was always there. And then unfortunately in the, 
2000 something, I think it was 2011 or 12 or something like that. Some of the legislatures, I guess they, they only listened to the hunters they, or whatever it was, but they decided to cut it and they did. They cut it out. Yeah. And then because of the Nature Conservancy, we, we, worked, we worked a lot with the NARS people on the island because they weren't well liked within their own department, right? And then there's still some bad feelings between forestry and NARS and wildlife and NARS, but but it's getting better. The new generation coming in is getting way better. Yeah. I was going to say, I really feel like there is, you know, really within the state department of land and natural resources there's just is so much more uh cohesion it used to be very adversarial it, it used to be nars was the nars staff was an afterthought now mm-hmm. the nars or they call them nipam now yeah native ecosystem management protection so yeah. now they're one of the bigger branches in each district you know they they do a lot of good work yeah so yeah i was speaking with um you know, someone who is previously over here on Hawaii Island, um, you know, dealing with much the same issues as, as you over over there in Molokai, trying to do fencing, trying to facilitate hunting. And, you know, his perspective was one of like, you know, very much protection of native ecosystems, very much like 100% behind that. But on the other hand, he could see how, maybe hunters have wanted better access into certain areas or some areas and there just hasn't been in this. And, you know, this is the same level of like facilitation for access and so forth. I mean, like what, what's your thought about that? Like, like Bob Hobdy was saying in his interview, most of the money nowadays goes towards protection, you know, which of course is that that's my, um, you know, bias. Right. But like at the, maybe the expense of, other areas that could be developed for hunting? Like, what do you, I mean, just broadly, like in, in state. My perspective is Hawaii Island still has mm-hmm. acres and acres and acres of native forests. Yeah. And so it does intrude on the hunting community because, you know, you're talking about the conservation movement trying to protect acres and acres and acres of forest that they, they all hunt in, yeah? Whereas on an island like Molokai or Maui, most of our native system is just the top of the mountains now. And so it, it, there's a separation, whereas on the Big Island, there's not this separation yet. So that's it's a harder job on the Big Island, if you ask. That makes sense. I'm just curious, talking about managing ungulates, um, <laughs> what do you see happening with the deer? I mean, we it's hard to sort of give a give a context in a minute here uh, as far as like the impacts and, and what, what's going on there. But it's sort of, that's where you see Molokai in the news now is like the, the deer impacts. And so I'm just kind of uh, curious what you think, how that's changed the game as far as maybe the protected areas you have fenced are okay, but maybe not. I mean, these things are not like controlling uh, goats and sheep and pigs. The, the deer reoccurring problem. We grew up with sometimes there was a big deer population, right. other times. I mean, one of the one of the biggest challenges for the pineapple fields was when it drought. Uh, yeah, the deer would come and eat all the young shoots of the pineapples. That we all grew up with that. So you know the population would fluctuate because deer is on an island ecosystem with no predators, right? What's changed? 
we have a different dynamic on Molokai now. We have people that don't want to see deer being hit on the road. We have people who don't want to see deer dying, but that's a natural occurrence, right? Yeah, so they're just making more... Well, fuss, but yeah, I see. I get it. Well, yeah. I mean, the government is is one of steps in and try to alleviate problems because it's a safety issue, right? Right, right, right. But I, what I think that the, to me, the solution is not not trying to hire people to go out and shoot the deer. It's rather working with the landowners to create more access for people to go in and hunt deer. Because if you create the access, believe me, hunters will come and they will, and Molokai have pretty good hunters, you know. Uh, It's just that there's not free and easy access to go in areas to reduce the deer population. Right. That makes sense. And one of the places where the deer population is thriving is in the homestead area because, you know, it's hard to hunt in the homestead area because there's a lot of houses. But let me tell you, people tell me nightly there's 200 deer in their backyard, you know. So it's it's a problem that I think can be solved if our government worked with all the major landowners to try to get better Mm. access so something you could address by partnering with, well, supporting hunter interests in that sense, it sounds. Yeah. yeah. And and like you say, most of our watersheds are protected from deer. So, you know, it, it it's the, the increase of the deer population is not really affecting our natural areas as much as as much as uh, things inside the fence that may get inside the fence. So, yeah, I, I'm curious. So this fire that happened in the, was it 97, 98, this big, the big one, um, you've told me about this, uh, how the change and how the kind of community got together. So this is, I imagine it's moving yes. focus, obviously, from up Malka to more of the, the lowland and the impacts around the communities. And so I, first, I'm curious about like how you sort of were involved in that initial fire. I'll give you the whole history. Yeah, I want to know. I'm like dying. So, of course, fire is a major threat to our native ecosystem because uh, it's not like on the continent where forests thrive after a fire. In in Hawaii, a fire goes through the native forest, you get extinct species, you know. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I I was always involved with the fire on Molokai, and the first big one was 1987. We had a fire up Mauka, and we just so happened we had our own helicopter pilot here. And it could have been a big fire, but he went up there without even being called, and he started dipping out of a, a, a pool in a gulch, and he basically put it out. And it, it was uh, it was right below our preserve. But he put it out, and the first time I went up with the state DOFA and learned all about what their strategy and mm-hmm. what they do with fire, okay? 1988, now that was the huge Mm. fire. It was a, you know, 10,000 acre fire, basically. It just got out of hand and five helicopters fighting fires for two weeks. I mean, you you talk about the cost of dealing with fires. And so both DOFA, who responds, the fire department and the Navy, we all had the same goal. We don't want fires to go up in the mountain. It costs a lot and it destroys a lot. So that happened in 1988. 1991, same thing, big fire, same place, reoccurring. And the major factor of starting these fires is, was the response time. You know, by the time the helicopters came, it was like three, four hours later, you know, the fire ran away. So then came 1998, another big fire. It destroyed a lot. And, and so 
you know, all of these fires took a couple of weeks to, to finally control and get settled down. So in 2000, there was this, again, Clinton-Gore program. It was uh, to form a, a reef task force on Molokai. And it was through the NRCS. And she asked me, can you, can you head the fire strategy part? And I said, sure. And so with my experience, I, I, I decided, I, you know, we, we cannot stop fire by having a helicopter here. And so I said, what we can do is create a task force, bring people together with resources, better communication, whatever, and, and work from there. So in, in 2003, we officially formed the Molokai Fire Task Force. And this one key fireman, Molokai boy, he was stationed on Lanai. He moved back to Molokai. 2006, he came to the first meeting and he bought into what we was trying yeah. to do. And he's the one that made it really happen. And his name is Travis Tenkaio. And I give him all the credit. He really supported and helped lead it. And so we would have regular meetings. We would we would get together. You know, we, we all tried to get one of the biggest issues on the fire is we didn't have the same communication. So that's the first thing we, 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 we bought this thing called the magic box where you can put everybody's radio in it and everybody could talk to each other now. And the how you could talk to all yeah. the helicopters that way. Cause a lot of time they called in the military choppers. We couldn't talk to them. So they were dropping things blind, you know? So we didn't have a big fire until 2009. And that was the huge one, 15,000 acres. It took us four days to get it under control because of the task force and how we work yeah. together. And we all had this, we were all on the same page and it really, really helped. And were yeah. you also, I mean, cause you know, on these, these kind of incidents, you're coordinating with uh, private folks like dozer operators, things like that. Was there also coordination? Yeah. Not only that, the landowners, keys, access, you know, so the task force, the task force, and I kept telling people who become part of the task force, our our job is not to tell DOFA or the fire department how to fight fire. That's not what our job is. Our job is to support them and bring in information and 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 partnerships to help them with their job. Yeah. Especially the stuff before the fire happens, right? Like having all that information together. Yes. And we did, and that was another great thing. The guy that worked for Public Works on the county here in Molokai, a really good guy, he became part of the fire and he took this seriously. And technically, he couldn't do fire breaks. Right. What he would do, he would tell his boss. And and they always need dozer training. Okay, I'm going to do dozer training in this area. And he built this series of fire breaks you know, above the mm -hmm. town, above the places. And so when fires started half the time, we were able to stop it at the fire. Catch it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like a model. I mean, we, if you like kind of use you guys as this example, um, across the state, right. Like pointing to, and we, I, but I was kind of scratch my head as like, you know, as you get into some of the other islands, it kind of gets diffuse, right. There's so many different players and I think it's harder to coordinate across that many different folks, but, um, right. So my advice to them is get the fire department involved. That's key. It's like until you like experience a fire, act of fire, just the extent to which everybody gets on board, it pulls everybody together and you become reliant on everybody there who's willing to help. 
And, and the other thing about it is, you know, most, most of the helicopter pilots, they would just attack the fire. So now with the fire task force and the communication, the, the helicopter pilots were more in tune about what the strategy right. should be. Yeah. yeah, where to go, maybe where the resources are. Where yeah, to- All the, I mean, simple things like just concentrate on this area, the rest of it, let it burn. Because once it burns, it won't burn exactly. again. You know? <laughs> we're still struggling with that kind of, you know, that communication with the public. And you said about how, you know, to get their support and get them on board, because there's like plenty of times you see these fires, like there's classic example on Kauai, right? It's like that same triangle burns between uh, Kikaha and, uh, and Waimea. And it's like, you know, for most of that area, you can totally like let it burn as long as you're protecting the brakes and don't let it jump the road, you know? So allowing people to get that mindset of like, you know, these places have burned in the past, they'll probably burn again in the future, but it's not threatening anything. You know, unfortunately, whatever was there native ecosystem wise is long gone. And, um, you know, Eddie, speaking of, you know, um, your heart in this work, um, you know, and this is something we ask all of our guests, and I, I know that it's always hard to choose or think of one place, but is there a special place that's in your bones, that's in your heart that you love to, to go to that inspires, you know, your career, your work? Um, and it can be in the land or the sea. Is there somewhere that you... There, there's several places that are tied for free. Yeah. Of course, I love going on the Molokai, the South Shore Fringing Reef. I, I love that. Yeah. Wherever, yeah. You know? And then second, I, I, I really love Momomi. My dad used to take me fishing there when I was a little mm. boy, and it's a special yeah. place for me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I love Kamako Preserve because of the establishment. <laughs> but and then of course, there's a place in Kamalo I really, really revere. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I can't choose one yeah. place. I just got yeah. there's all these places that I really love, and I really. Uh, I'm so glad I had a part in helping to protect. Let me just tell you guys this. Um, first of all, I just want to say I, I am so, I feel so fortunate, so blessed, um, so lucky to have been given a chance by the Nature Conservancy to do something that really comes from my heart, you know, because I, because of I'm doing something that I think can, can make a difference for the island of Molokai, right? So, for for me, I'm I'm very, I'm I, I feel very fortunate and blessed. And then second of all, <clears throat> and uh, I, I I leave you know I retired in January 2021, but I basically look at the the work that I've done that I've helped create. And for me, I I just consider myself a table setter. I I help set the table for the next generation, trying to make it easy for the next generation to do conservation. In, in on Molokai. Um, I have a question related to your table setting. Uh, just, you know, how do you see, I mean, I think the general sentiment is pretty hopeful, but I'm just curious, like your take on the change in both the interest and the kind of, uh, you know, enthusiasm of the younger folks coming up, coming into this work and like how that's changed and your, your view of that over the years, being involved in the outreach and education side, all the way up to the kind of putting in fence side. I think the Nature Conservancy of Molokai has played a big part in raising awareness. And so today's generation, um, you know, the, the twenties to the forties, they, they are pretty aware and they all pretty much support what we're doing. 
and mm-hmm. and a lot there's so many people in that age group now that are actively involved with conservation uh one way or the other and uh, and and i it's especially exciting to see some of our young cultural experts that are intertwining our native yeah. watershed and forest with the hawaiian culture yeah and yeah. bring it, bring not 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 involving but bringing it back bringing the awareness back of how these places are very important to the Hawaiian culture. They, they are really the ancestors of Hawaii. They're, they're the first to, to arrive in Hawaii is our native ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. We've been asking folks about that, that how that is changing too. that dimension of it, where it's this well, kind just, of, the- just look at all our federal state agencies and our, our conservation. They're all young people now. And you know, <laughs> Melissa can tell you. I don't know if she remembers this, but when we used to go to these watershed conferences, the conservation conference, yeah, used to be a handful of people, and we all knew each other. Yeah. yeah. Now you go to it, and wow, where does all these people? Come from? <laughs> yeah, there's like a thousand people that show yeah. up at that thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I used to go, like it would be like 150. Yeah, and I don't even know 90 percent of these people. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It's so true. We really have, there's just so many more people doing, doing this work, which is wonderful. Yeah. I was just on a call with those guys. They're like, we're, they're stuck because the convention center is the only place big enough that can handle the group. They're like, we'd love to go try some other place, but it's just so big. Not, not enough room. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Eddie, before we close? No, I, I, I think I shared enough. <laughs> I share a lot. The thing I want to share is that I've been through a lot, but I'm happy what I've what I've helped to accomplish, and yeah. uh, I, I'm happy in retirement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I mean, there's plenty of people I think to kind of pick up the mantle and you know keep these keep these projects yeah. going. So there's way more people now than when I went 30 years ago. Way yeah. More. I mean, Sort of was off the radar. It's not even quadruple. It's more like twenty-fold difference, thirty-fold yeah. difference on number of people involved with conservation now. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I'm also proud of um, of my son, who's kind of followed in my footstep, and he, he oh yeah, Dofa now. Yeah, is he on island on Molokai? Oh no, in Oahu. He's the wildlife He's manager on- of the Oahu district. Yeah, so. Yeah, he's the one that followed in my footsteps, and I'm really proud of what Jason. He, yeah. I didn't know that he was your son. I know How Jason. How can you not know? Everybody says that he looks like me. <laughs> That's true. Well, because I haven't met you in person yet. That's why. <laughs> but now that I'm seeing it, it's like, oh my gosh, of course, of course. That's, that's, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, yeah, he's great. Um, also, I would just give him a lot of credit, him and uh, Ryan Peralta. They're great leaders on the fires. He's, you know, see a lot of the younger guys looking up to, to him. Oh, well, thank you so much, Eddie. It's so great to talk to you. We love Molokai. We're diving deep in this podcast the, uh, on Molokai because I think like you folks have so much lessons to teach us, um, you know, about how t- to care for and, and to, to work with community. So, yes, Jason. Yeah, how to work together. 100%. Really. Yeah. That's what it comes down so, to. Yeah, you guys have brought back a lot of great memories for me. As well as I'm not so great, but yeah, it it all has progressed to the positive. So I'm glad. 
That's awesome. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time, Ed. We really, really appreciate it. As I said, um, you know, like there's so much to learn from everybody. And we're just trying to make these available to folks to kind of get a sense of where where people have come from and where, where they're going to take it next. So uh, I think your story is really, really important. So, Melissa, yeah. keep up the, the great art and clay. Okay. Even though you're in the fire, you do fire stuff, keep, keep the fire lit. <laughs> yeah. <well. laughs> the puns are endless. <laughs>